Recently, I planned and set in motion events to execute the perfect bank robbery. Everybody get down on the floor now! Why? Because I can't. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast staring at that face on your face. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my Albanian propaganda vocalist, Joe Reed. How dare you ask me to remove my clothes? I will stand in defiance of you. I love that lady. What a good lady. She's like, no, you're, you should be ashamed of yourself. I loved that. She's great. Justice for her. I deeply wanted her to turn up to be one of the robbers at the very end. When you see at the end, like who the, who some of the people actually were robbers. I wanted her to be one of them, but alas, <laughs> alas, she was not. What a fun Joe, movie. What a good movie. <laughs> what a fun movie this is. We'll get into it on the other side of all our other business, but I definitely want to talk about, so don't let me forget, uh, Spike Lee directing other people's screenplays, because it's a very small subset, but like, I think Where it's a very- he doesn't have a, an official Writers right. Guild uh, credit. Right, right. <laughs> hand in the screenplay. Right. I He definitely had some retooling with this, because it's of so- Of course he did, but like, it's- So distinctly Spike Lee, and- like so obviously for the better too because i think this movie could be a very like serviceable fun bank robbery movie totally yeah with like a mystery slash framing device did you ever watch sorry go ahead i was gonna say just because uh we can talk further about it later once we're into the thick of the movie but like spike lee infusing the types of things that like he's fascinated with his obvious love for new yorkers and like the mm-hmm. average new yorker yep yep because like Hugely. you almost wonder yep. was this movie even written specifically for new york city and he makes it such a new york movie mm-hmm. just down to like casting of bit players and like the type of casual racism that people have Mm -hmm. and uh, you know the visual experience of the movie where it's just like jodie foster and Plummer go do a walk and talk but it's like along the hudson uh, you know yep uh, it's it's so much even Even just the opening the opening thing where they drive all the way up from is it Staten Island or wherever they like all the way through Brooklyn across like all the way to Wall Street, essentially. And it's just like, it's a very like, you know, a lot of people don't like when movies are very like insularly New York, but it's also just like, oh, he's so attuned to the geography of where this takes place and the fact that it matters that it's this 
you know, the oldest of old banks on Wall Street that has existed since the 1940s. And that, of course, plays into the plot, but it's also, you know, part of the themes of the movie as well. So he's... It's- Oh, I love him as a filmmaker. Yeah, I really well, do. I mean, it's it's just the thing of you know we don't want to just presume uh, the scenario that we've essentially put forth. You know that it's just the, a script, and then you know it's a director you know changing it or infusing it. But it is this movie is so markedly different where you can tell on its surface on the page it could be a totally fine movie but because yes. of who makes it it becomes a great movie yes yeah well and i mean that's what you know that's what not separates the greats from the good filmmakers but you know what i mean that's it's something that is very particular to Spike Lee that he's that kind of filmmaker that can just put his stamp on something without it seeming without taking away from what's great about the story you know what I mean like this Mm -hmm. is a really solid story this is a good yarn you know what I mean to sort of use a uh an old-timey term but um oh I really love it I really love it it's one of the this is maybe like the third time I've seen it and it's it's a, I've never actually come across it on television, which is, and I'm sort of like the last great American cable subscriber, you know what I mean? But like, <laughs> that's one of my old man tendencies. Um, it's my, it's my Gen Xer coming out that I still have cable. Um, mostly because it's just much less of a hassle for me doing my job. But um, I always have such a reverence for movies that are, you know, great that work great on cable contact. Speaking of Jodie Foster is one of the great cable movies because no matter where you jump into it, you're going to still find an iconic, you know, scene that you haven't gotten to yet. I'm We're surprised talk about Jodie Foster, but we like sure Jodie Foster feels very much like the queen of the cable movie. And, and I'm surprised I've never come across inside man on cable because it, I think it would be a tremendously good cable movie. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? So, uh, so fun. So, okay, so, so fun. let's just let's just let's just thought experiment this now. Let's do it. Yeah. If you have simultaneously multiple Jodie Foster movies that would play well on cable, playing simultaneously, what is playing on what channel? I think we can agree that Inside Man is on TNT. Okay, but that if Inside Man is on TNT, then where is Contact? Because Contact is not a Contact's T- on TBS. Is it? TBS is a comedy number. It's on AMC. Fine, it's on AMC. I think that, that works. What's the one on TBS? TBS is more of a comedy um, channel. Maverick. Maverick's a good one, actually. Yeah. Not too uh, bad. Nell is on Lifetime. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Brave one is on Spike or something. Taxi Driver's on TCM. Sure. You know what I mean? The Brave One's on Spike. I missed that. The Brave One is on Paramount Network. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's on... Pa- no, that's perfect. Paramount Network. Yep. Um, Even though... What's on a Paramount VH1? Movie? It's probably not a Paramount movie, but whatever. It's a Warner what's Brothers What's on VH1? Movie. What is on VH1? What Jody movie is on VH1? The Brave One's a Warner Brothers movie. VH1 could be Panic Room. VH1 could be... Um, Panic Room's on, like, IFC... 
May yeah, Panic Room's the decent IFC. Silence of the Lambs is on. I've actually seen Silence of the Lambs on Lifetime. It's so funny that you've mentioned that. Um Silence of the Lambs is probably on I mean, it could honestly be network. You know what I mean? Like Silence of the Lambs is a good like afternoon movie that you can find on mm-hmm. basically any channel. Um What were we VH1? What's the VH1 movie? With Jody, there's got to be a really good. It's one. not like flight plan. No, it's not flight plan. Like flight I'm, plan sucks. Flight plan does kind of suck. Um, I don't know, man. Like I feel like maybe I it's like p- foxes. Maybe, maybe if like in old timey, like older VH1 would probably do that. Freaky Friday is on the Disney Channel. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're doing both Freaky Fridays back to back. Yeah. Um, what's showing Alice doesn't live here anymore? Mm. Maybe that's back to back on TCM. TCM oh? is TCM has a back to back of Alice doesn't live here anymore in Taxi Driver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they're yeah, doing yeah. like a they're doing like a series. I love this idea. The Jodie Foster Cable Owen is playing Summersby. <laughs> What's Ovation playing? I don't even think I know what Ovation is. Oh my god, how dare you. Um, Wait, what's BBC America playing? A very long engagement. A a very long engagement, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners, get at us what Jodie Foster movie you think is playing on VH1. I love it. I love it. All right. Um, uh, Good exercise. That's a good, like, warm-up exercise for this movie. That's very good. I, like, spoiler, I think Jodie Foster is incredible in this movie. And I don't think I always thought that. But, like, watching it again, I'm like, I could just, like... Not to like be on theme for Jody for this month, but like I could like do a backstroke through Jody's performance in this movie. Like it's so, it's so <laughs> rich and buoyant, and uh, and oh, she's just eating it up. She is eating like. Let's save it. Let's save it. We'll get into it later. Um, because I think like everyone's kind of eating it up down to the point where it's like, okay, yeah. so if this movie is going to be a Spike Lee movie, of course, like Willem Dafoe shows up as like uh-huh. just a cop. Like uh-huh. just a cop, he's just like the cop that is there, and they just talk. Yep. But like, do you know who's low key eating it up and like not even you wouldn't even think to mention it at first is Shwetel Ejiofor, who is like I mean diving actor. into that New York accent in this movie. <laughs> like he really is just like having. He's almost doing like a Spike Lee impersonation as you know with his with his character's voice. I love it so much. Um. Oh, yeah. All right. Love this movie. Love all of the like character actors slash some of them just people off the street that Spike Lee cast as all of the people stuck in the bank when this robbery is happening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, also, just, like that's another Spike Lee thing, right? Every single person in this in this bank, whether they be an accomplice to Clive Owen, a secret accomplice to Clive Owen, or just like a legitimate bystander hostage feels like um like hand selected by Spike Lee. You know what I mean? It's like it's a it's a chef who like takes very good care to like every ingredient feels bespoke, right? And like every single 
character actor in this who has more than like one line, even down to the ones who have just yes. one line, are so feel so bespoke and so perfectly selected for their roles in this movie. And that to me, rather than location Spike scouting, Spike just goes around the five boroughs <laughs> looking for someone who is cussing someone out, and then he casts them. But even it's just like the character actors, like he goes to you know there there's a level of character actor that people like you and me probably know their names. You know what I mean? I think back of like uh, our former guest, Tara Ariano, former and future, uh, because she's already uh, reached out to me about a couple of things that like we got to have her on for and we do. Um, uh, schedule it immediately. Used to run a site called Fame Tracker and Fame Tracker was so good for talking about character actors. They had a, uh, a recurring feature called Two Stars, One Slot that I like still constantly think of today about like two character actors who feel like they're like going for the same vibe. Um, they had, Hey, it's that guy, which was like the, the, the character actor sort of, you know, Bible there. Um, and so there's a level of character actor that I think as somebody like me who like was sort of raised on fame tracker, I know their names. And then Spike Lee kind of goes like the level below. Like I know Ken Leung mostly because he's on lost, but like, um, a lot of these people, it's just like uh, the the guy from the Wes Anderson movies, whose name is Waris Alawalia, and Peter Frechette, and Peter Garrity, and all of these, uh, James Ransone, like people whose names I don't really know off the top of my head, but I'm looking them up. I'm like, oh, yeah, like I've seen this person in like 8 billion things, and their face is so familiar to me, and they communicate so much as a character actor, and... Um, and Spike feels like every single one of them was like very, very intentionally selected. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm sure his casting director had a, you know, obviously, I don't want to take away from like the job of this movie's character, uh, uh, casting director whose name I'm not going to see because they don't, they're not included in the Wikipedia sidebar. I'll figure it out. Um, but just, I don't know, like bail me out of this. I'm, I'm spiraling. Uh, well, I mean, how about this? I will give you something else to talk about. Thank Why you. don't you hype our Patreon? Casting director is Kim Coleman. So shout out to Kim Coleman for phenomenal casting. We Why don't it. I hype up our... Also, like, <laughs> look at the all of the crafts people on this movie at some point where it's like Terrence Blanchard. We're going to talk Matthew about Terrence Liberty. Blanchard. I can't. Yeah. Okay. I just like... Uh, listeners. The, the work, the man, the genius. If you are not already subscribed to our Patreon, this had Oscar Buzz Turbulent Brilliance, now really is the time to do it. Like, we have some really fantastic stuff for you. It's only $5 a month. With that $5 a month, you'll get two full bonus episodes a month. Plus, we are now uh, answering uh, your voicemails uh, in short form. Chris, what's the number if you want to call for voicemails? Are we going to put it on the podcast here? Or are we going to say, go to the Patreon page? Uh, I don't, what do we, what, I don't know the standard of what. <laughs> Go what, to our Patreon page. What, if you are a Patreon, you will be, you have uh, access to, that's true. Yeah. If you don't, yeah, we're not going to get. I mean, I'm sure the number can get shared, but like, if you're going to call in and that's not true. subscribe, you're not going to hear your call. That's true. Um, yeah. So we're, yeah. Subscribe first and then you get the number, fool. Um, uh, you can uh, leave a voicemail for us and we'll answer it for you in, uh, some short form irregularly posted uh, uh, short episodes. But we have exceptions episodes, which are, of course, uh, where we cover a movie that had all the goods of an, this had Oscar Buzz movie, but got maybe a couple nominations. So we can't really talk about it on main feed. We've talked about Rob Marshall's Nine, 
Pleasantville, The Lovely Bones, which was a, a listener-selected, Patreon-selected um, episode. At this point, will Australia be up? It sure will. Our very fr- Who else could be our first guest on the Patreon but Katie Rich? Our best pal, Katie Rich. We're going to be talking about Australia. I'm sure we'll have some Faraway Downs uh, discussion in there as well. I just watched the trailer for Faraway Downs. And like, it's absurd the degree to which it's going to be the best looking show on television. It's just, it's just like by leaps and bounds uh, and not even trying to like call out television, but like you look at your average Netflix show and then you put that side by side with Faraway Downs, which is essentially just like Australia as it was originally filmed. And it was just like, Oh my Serialized God. Serialized director's cut. Hun- yeah. hundred um, percent. We also have our excursions episodes, which are more off format stuff. We've talked about the, uh, actress roundtable for 2016. Chris went and saw Magic Mike live. We are recapping the 1996 MTV Movie Awards, which will be coming soon. The Once 15th again, of November. I know ne- I have no idea when anything is posting. Chris is my uh, calendar. He's my Miss Minutes. If you watch uh, Loki, but uh, uh, Chris doesn't. Um, the 1996 MTV Movie Awards. I have so many thoughts. You're going to hear. All of them. So We're recording that later today. We, we have are. a very long day ahead of us. We do have a long day ahead of us. It's fine. It's it's we are we're working hard for the money. So hard for it, honey. To sign up for this had Oscar Buzz Turbulent Brilliance, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash this had Oscar Buzz. We love you, Gary's. We want to give you even more. And for five dollars a month, you can uh you can partake. It'll Come be good join for us, us and have some fun. Come play with us. Come play with us, Danny. All right. Um, do you Joe, know who else was having fun? Spike Everyone Lee. involved with this movie. Everyone involved with Inside Man. Yeah. What if there was a man who was inside? What if... <laughs> he truly... I mean, and it's one of those... It's a title that means a bunch of different things. Once you get to the end of the movie, you see that the title is a, has a double meaning. That it's like, oh, ooh, ooh, okay. Maybe even a triple <laughs> meaning. Who even knows? Uh, but there's at least two meanings to the, to the title. I love a movie that opens with a direct-to-camera address. Clive Owen, who rules in this movie and we're going to talk about the sort of the tragedy of clive owen hollywood leading man who essentially got rejected um but he's really good in this it opens with a direct address to the camera and he's essentially just like my name is wait what is his name in this it's russell something right dalton russell uh my name is dalton russell i've just committed the greatest bank heist in history. I don't repeat myself. You've already got my name. Everything I say, I say with intention. So listen closely. And he says something about like how his location is in a cell, but it's, uh, but it doesn't feel like a prison cell. And so immediately you're just sort of like, all right, what does he mean by that? Like what's going on? And that pays off by the end. All of the stuff he's saying pays off by the end. He is a, um, a bank robber for justice. He's a bank robber for <laughs> for truth and reconciliation. It's it's good outing stuff. uh Nazi profiteers. Nazi Nazi sympathizers and profiteers. Exactly, exactly yeah. right. Everybody in this movie rules. Uh truly everyone in this movie rules. Yeah. It's great. It's it's and it was received so tepidly by both the public and critics, I think. That it's, am I wrong? Am I wrong? I I mean, initially, it just, 
it was received like, okay, here's a spring movie. It got good reviews. It's Spike Lee's biggest box office movie. Okay. But like when it was released, I feel like people were like, wait a minute, this was directed by Spike Lee. Why aren't they promoting it? Or like, yeah. it was very quiet that like this Spike Lee movie. I didn't realize that it was this, Spike like, Lee's biggest box hit. office hit. Okay. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I guess because like his movies tend to not make a ton of money because it like didn't even clear a hundred million. Uh, yeah, it was eighty eight million, but it's yeah. still his largest grocer. All right. But like, I think that conversation didn't really happen until the fall because like you did have like critics coming out for this movie in the fall, like as you know what you know what was a great movie inside man but even now even now 17 some odd years later this movie was released 10 years before meryl streep and don gummer quietly separated we're gonna talk about that um, i i chris okay no okay this is we're recording this hours after the news breaking that meryl and don have amicably split this is technically this had oscar buzz number 262 what it is actually is this had oscar buzz number 001 for the post meryl and don era um i think the clock of time of earth of the stars the sun and the moon has reset with this i am i learned this by the way in the middle of the night it was one of those things where i woke up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom i did the most unhealthy thing you can do which is check your phone when you wake up in the middle of the night like don't ever do that like it's so bad for your you know whatever circadian rhythms or whatever just like don't do as i do but i did and i checked it and i saw this tweet from the new york post of all awful places that said that meryl streep and don gummer have been like quietly separated for 6 years and it was so upsetting. I immediately sent it to our group chat and then went back to sleep. But like, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't have like awful nightmares after that. You don't understand the the faith and security that I have felt for all these years, knowing that like if nothing else in the world makes sense, at least Meryl and Don are together raising their identical daughters and weird rocker son and living in Connecticut. And, <laughs> Lest we forget the rocker's son. Um, it's the timing of it also. If you go back six years right from now, the timing of it comes not long after Meryl she's was nominated. Right. But she's also, it's not many months after she was nominated for Florence Foster Jenkins. And I wonder if Don maybe took the Annette Benning snub for 20th Century Women a little bit harder than he should have and maybe mentioned that hey you've got a lot of nominations maybe you could have let Annette have this one and maybe Don Meryl- was halfway through finishing his sculpture in the honor of Amy <laughs> Adams in Arrival Don was just walking around with a sign that said human and Meryl got really really annoyed by it um, you know it's funny because Okay, okay, also though, you know how I've talked about how the Trump election broke a lot of people? Truly everyone. Meryl gave that speech at the Golden Globes in 2017, like right after the Trump election, and it was like... Got on stage with a 
like completely no vocal cords. Her voice was gone. Her voice was gone. Found it throughout the speech. Carrie, she was still mourning Carrie Fisher. She like her voice like choked yes. up when she talked about Carrie Fisher. She like by memory called out the like uh, birthplaces of half of the room, and then made this like very sort of like heartfelt. Uh, statement against Donald Trump. Donald Trump put her on his enemies list or whatever the fuck. Like, everybody was going through a fuck ton of emotions. and In public. In public. Very public. Everybody was having a full breakdown in some public forum. Far be it for me to blame Donald Trump for one more thing, but, like, maybe we can also blame either Trump and Florence Foster Jenkins, some combination of the two of them, for the Meryl and Don split. They say that it was amicable. They say that they are, you know, still friends to this day. Thank God it was not revealed that they were separated when she won her Oscar and gave that lovely little shout out to him because I would like, I would lose all faith in, in humanity if that turned out to be a lie. But all I'm saying, we could potentially in like two hours, 95 minutes, the clock is ticking, get a quote from Meryl saying that she has always known that Tupac had alopecia. (laughs) (laughs) To bring it back to the topic at hand, shouldn't Meryl star in a Spike Lee movie slash shouldn't Spike Lee direct Meryl Streep in a movie? I mean... Wouldn't that be fucking amazing? I agree. Maybe, like, just putting it out there, now that, you know, she doesn't have a marriage to tend to anymore, maybe she's got a little bit extra time, maybe Meryl and Spike could put their heads together. They're both, like, they're both very fond of New York from, like, very different angles, right? She's very much a Greenwich they Village. They could make a very eccentric New York movie together. That they could I make an incredible New York movie together. Oh my god, I think it would be incredible. All right. Um... Back to Inside Man. So Inside Man sort of starts off its life as this screenplay written by Russell Gerwitz, and he's sort of shopping it around Hollywood, and it comes to the attention of uh, Ron Howard and Brian Grazer at Imagine, and Ron Howard's like, oh, this seems interesting. As like, who knows what inspires Ron Howard to like, oh, I'll make this. And is looking at it, it was attached to it for a little bit, and then turns it down so that he can make Cinderella Man with Russell Crowe, which is sort of what I'm talking about. But it's just like, who knows like what sort of inspires Ron Howard to do whatever. On one level, he's going to make this bank heist movie. <laughs> and it's like, no, I'm just going to make an old-timey boxing movie with Russell Crowe. Sure do whatever so brian grazer's like fine we'll we'll uh, keep looking for other directors in the meantime like the script sort of gets tinkered with terry george who had done hotel rwanda right terry george's hotel rwanda yes um contributes to he's an irish uh filmmaker uh contributes to the script sort of adds the nazi angle which is interesting because it was like what was this movie before the Nazi angle is introduced because it's like kind of central to everything. Um, and then at some point it gets uh, offered to Spike Lee, who's like, huh, I really love Dog Day Afternoon. This script really reminds me of Dog Day <laughs> Afternoon. Why don't I try and make this? And 
then, you know, sort of sets about putting his stamp on it. He does not have any kind of official screenplay credit on this, but as we were saying at the beginning, you sort of get the feeling that there are at least touches that feel like things were nudged in a in a direction towards his sensibility. I think even, like, his visual aesthetic brings, you know, I mean, you know, the, like, tracking shots where it's, you know, the... Mm-hmm protagonist in the center frame and you, you get know. it right at the beginning that that goodfellas shot where the background seems to be moving forward uh mm-hmm. advancing upon the 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 person in the shot love uh, that shot it, things like that the what would you call this like mi- murky visual aesthetic for the framing device of the interrogation, she would tell interrogation in the interrogation scenes where it's like where you're sort of thrown would, into the deep end where you don't know when these things are taking place, how far after the heist, whether these people, you know, at, at what stage are they explaining it? Is this happening during the heist? Are they being questioned as they're being let out of the bank? Or it's is such this happening a smart, after? Just like visual assist to the audience for this movie that yeah. like you constantly have to keep up with. That yeah. like we can also know that there's a before and after of what we're seeing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that clearly something something happens that like so flummoxes these detectives that they are interrogating the ostensible hostages and victims of this. And you're like, why are they going so hard at this like old man who got let out? You know what I mean? Like clearly he's not, you know, he's not part of this. Like, why are they going so hard at this, you know, guy who we had seen with a gun in his face? And like, why do you know what an AK 47 is? And, (laughs) and that's James Ransone's character, right? Like that's the one that turns out, like they turned out to be like correct in their suspicion of him. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, which I think is so funny. Um, but clearly something has happened to make them suspicious of all of these, hostages that they're like they they clearly don't know who or how many people were pulling off this heist and in the meantime you have this you know opening frame of clive owen just being like this whole heist is way smarter than you even think it is so you're just like pay very close attention to everything to everything like clive owen is essentially just like saying like you will never figure out the levels at which i am operating on this on this heist it's like game on asshole but like yeah it's also true yeah it's yeah. it's cool when a movie can do something like that because that does feel very 2000s to me yeah but this is one of the movies that actually does pull that off. Yes. Also, the aesthetics of all of these characters is so funny because, like, the Clive Owen and his robbers are, are you know, put on these very sort of blue collar, like, uh, coveralls and and masks and sunglasses and whatever. Jodie Foster, looks like Hollow Man. Jody, yeah, they look like Hollow Man. Jodie Foster is in this very like power bitch, you know, uh, a suit going about her business. And then Denzel Washington approaches the crime scene looking like Zoot Suit Malcolm X from the very beginning of Malcolm X with like, with the hat and the tan suit and all this stuff. And it's just like, he's, uh, he looks so hilariously out of place. It's very funny, but he's just like, coolest cat in the room, right? 
I love it. And then you have Christopher Plummer in a suit because he is legally and contractually obligated to always be wearing a suit in every movie. Christopher Plummer would Unless be it's beginners, but like the telltale know, thin mustache of villainy of just like <laughs> the telltale thin mustache of former Nazi supporter. Yeah. This movie coming out, it's so funny that this movie comes out five years before Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, and yet, like, it remind. Why do I keep thinking of Girl with a Dragon Tattoo? When is it just Plummer? Is it just the Christopher Plummer of it all? Is it just the sort of? I mean, maybe this is like too broad of a comparison, but it is like the I I don't know. I'd love to double feature kind of them immaculate junk because, like, yeah, yeah. In a way, this is a very junky movie turned into like just completely elevated yeah. by the filmmaker yeah and in the same way that like girl with a dragon tattoo is like trash yeah. that is entirely elevated by the meticulousness of yeah. fincher yeah and it's like it ha- both have like social political uh, right. aspects to them right it's also like white european villainy like you know what i mean uncovered yeah. <laughs> after all these years kind of a thing so yeah christopher Plummer is so great that because at this point beginners hadn't happened right. the last station hadn't happened so still even in this movie yeah. he is not an oscar nominee right right which is wild it is wild that's totally true he could have been nominated for A few for years after what it. should have been his first Oscar-winning performance as Mike Wallace in The Insider. This doesn't seem like... This doesn't feel like a 2006 movie to me. It feels like a 20-teens movie, and I don't know wh- what like that even means. Like I don't even know what distinction I'm putting on it, but it feels like a movie that has aged less than how long it's aged. Does that make sense? I agree, because like you watch this movie and it doesn't feel like a movie that's 20 years old. Correct. It doesn't really feel right. dated in no. any significant way. No, um, it could come out this year and we'd be like freaking and out. And it would it. still be a hit. Yeah. 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 Um, I've not prepared for the 60 second plot description, by the way. So I'm really. Well, guess what? It's about that time oh for you to give it. Because uh, <laughs> we're cracking a half hour already on gushing on this movie. Yeah. Listeners, Gary's, the rest of you. We are talking about Inside Man, Mm -hmm. directed by the one and only Spike Lee, written by Russell Gerwitz, starring Denzel Washington, Clive Owen, Jodie Foster, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Willem Dafoe, and Christopher Plummer, and a vast array Mm -hmm. of character performers and New Yorkers. The movie opened wide March 24th, 2006. Yes. Joseph. Yes. Are you ready to give a 60-second plot description of Inside Man? I just said I was not, but let's do it anyway. So, All right, then let's go. Your 60-second plot description of Inside Man starts now. All right, Clive Owen and a bunch of people that are Steve or various aliases of Steve um, take uh, take this bank, this very like old bank in very like downtown New York Wall Street area. They take a shit ton of hostages. They are not shy about letting the police know that they have these hostages. The police set up this operation where uh is headed by Denzel Washington. They're gonna have to figure out a way to get these hostages safe and thwart this bank robbery. Um meanwhile uh, the owner of the bank seconds. is Christopher Plummer who hires Jody Foster who is this like fixer who can like 
basically do anything to like get around this whatever he's got in a safe deposit box there that he doesn't want anybody to find out. Clearly, it becomes more and more apparent that this thing that's in the safe deposit box is exactly what Clive Owen is after. Denzel Washington sort of teams up with the Jodie Foster character for a little bit in trying to uh, get this thing solved. Obviously, something is amiss. Ten seconds. Oh, God. Um, uh, The bank robbers end up like escaping because everybody's dressed uh, identically and uh, you don't know who is an accomplice to uh, Clive Owen. We don't know where Clive Owen is at the end of the robbery. And then we find out like a week later that he has walled himself up in the supply room of the bank and he is able to walk out with the contents of the safe deposit box were a bunch of diamonds that were uh, stolen from Holocaust victims and he uh, leaves the cops with the one diamond ring that will lead them to incriminating uh, Christopher Plummer's character and he slips one diamond into Denzel's uh, pocket so that he can propose to his girlfriend with it and uh, Clive Owen gets away with it and he's sort of a Robin Hood for uh, Holocaust victims and Christopher Plummer is screwed. The end? Question mark. The end. Did I miss anything Question. major? No. It took you maybe a full minute to explain the ending, which well, right, because the ending because is it's, convoluted. It is somewhat Not a bad convoluted, way. but yeah. it's a lot. It's a lot more fun watching it than hearing the explanation exactly of what's going on. Because you you like you you sort of you just get it. You understand once you reach the point in the movie, which happens fairly early on, where you understand that Clive Owen is not after millions of dollars in cash or whatever that he's after whatever christopher Plummer is hiding in this safe deposit box that you're like oh okay so like clive owen is is a robin hood remnants etc it's yeah it's ill-gotten gains and it's most of the whole point of most of this is to expose the fact that this like billionaire made his fortune on the back of stolen uh, goods from being complicit with the Nazis back in uh, in Europe. But, like, Christopher Plummer, it's 2006. We're supposed to believe that this movie is happening in present day, right? How yes. young would Christopher Plummer have had to have been? Christopher Plummer has been playing 90-year-old characters <laughs> for 30 years. But like, but, like, you look good for 90. Like, all his characters are like, you're 90, but, like... He's a suave man. You're a suave 90, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> suave 90. That's like, I don't know, suave Club 96. shampoo with SPF in it or something. Club 96 features suave 90 uh, uh, products <laughs> in its <laughs> restrooms. <laughs> Club 96 is the gay bar and Suave 90 is the gay, is the straight version of Club 96. Uh, Christopher Plummer is the best. Uh, uh, died rules. at the age of 91. So he was he was playing those, you know, old he was ass playing people playing 90 good... when he was 34 years old. <laughs> Um, I also think it's so funny that like, what's it one of his like most iconic roles? It's like the sound of music where he's like on the, you know, on the noble side of, of reacting to the Nazis. And in this, he's like, what if Captain Von Trapp broke bad in the, in the old days and now owns a bank? In, in and Lower in Manhattan. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, he's like, all of my family are Nazis. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, my beloved niece sends me a flower every year. So, in the frame. 
this I want to talk about where Christopher Plummer brings Jodie Foster into this because like he sees that the bank has been broken into, and immediately he seeks out Jodie Foster, and she's somebody who is like this sort of like unscrupulous fixer will like you know make problems go away for corrupt public officials. She's got the mayor of New York in her pocket, essentially in her debt. She's got you know. 8 billion connections, she can make anything happen, and she's smart, because she knows enough to know that when Christopher Plummer's character, who you get the sense is, like, probably the wealthiest single individual in New York City, like, he's spoken of in that way. And so she knows that, like, when he contacts her personally, when he doesn't do it through a lawyer or an intermediary or something like that, that she knows that this is serious enough that he doesn't want to involve anybody else than is strictly necessary. So she knows that she's got him kind of by the balls immediately where she's just like, you're going to let me in on this and I'm going to fix it for you. But also like, I know that this is so important to you that you cannot allow this information to get out there. And you get the sense of like, this is how she's built this power base of hers is she's incredibly savvy and she's amoral. But I think this movie introduces a moral element to this character where by the end of the movie, you really do. I don't, am I naive in thinking that by the end of the movie, she's going to nail, she's going to use this information to nail plumber. Absolutely not. She is corrupt. She is no, she is a villain of this movie. Well then, okay. Then how am I supposed to see the end of this movie? Then is Denzel Washington fucking up by giving her this information then? Or is he putting her on notice? That's more what I okay. get. Okay. Because, like, she, if she is attached to this man who is about to go down, she is also going to go down. But that's what I mean. So isn't the plan that they're going to get her to turn on him because it's in her best interest? I more so read that, like, she's going down, too. Okay. Like, yeah. Um She's so terrific, though. She's so terrific. She's so... Jodie Foster, like, salt of the earth Jodie Foster, has never, like, played someone who's, like, lifts her vocal register to, like, soften it, and it's so intimidating and scary. Yes. Well, and so it's interesting. She this doesn't isn't... do anything menacing in this movie, and she's so scary. This is why. Uh, this is why it's so funny to me. This is why I mentioned the fact that Inside Man does not feel like a movie that happened in two thousand six, because there is the post. Um, there's the sort of aughts version of Jodie Foster that starts at Panic Room, which we've talked about on this podcast before, mm-hmm. and it's like Panic Room, Flight Plan, The Brave One which feels like a trilogy of these kind of popcorn movies that get increasingly bad. Um, but where she's playing essentially like a, uh, a woman with a steel core who um, on the outside is sort of uh, not equipped to deal with the world targeting her with some awfulness, whether it's people breaking into her home or whether it's, her on a plane gaslighting her and kidnapping her child on a plane on a plane or whether it's new york city's uh, uh criminal elements harassing her in central park but in all of these movies she turns out to have this sort of like spine of steel and she she comes out on top and i think then inside man is not that inside man belongs to the trend of roles that she sort of took 
in the aughts. I, I put this movie along with like Elysium and even to mm-hmm. a degree like Hotel Artemis, where maybe not Hotel that. Hotel Artemis. She's a, <laughs> I she's don't know a what weirdo. she's doing there. I kind of love her in that. Um, where she's but like Elysium and 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 Inside Man sort of seem like the same type of person who's like incredibly Clear powerful, villain. yeah, incredibly powerful, incredibly villain. manipulative. Like has gotten to her position by being absolutely amoral, and um, and I I don't love like nothing about Elysium really works for me <laughs> too Elysium well. Sucks. Um, but she's so she performs it so well in Inside Man. She takes to mm-hmm. this like supremely the confidence that Madeline White has on her in this movie is extremely watchable. You know what I mean? It's just like, I can't get enough of how absolutely sure of herself she is at every moment in this movie. And once like she actually shows up on the scene at the bank robbery, pretty much all of her stuff is with Denzel Washington, you know, the greatest living actor. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, we've never seen these two like mega stars yeah. together, these two incredible actors together. Yeah. And you can tell that they love working together. Yeah. And they have incredible chemistry in yeah. these roles. It's just, it's just. Well, and that was kind of her time. 1990s narrative was. 1990s Jodie Foster was all about working opposite these, like, titans of leading man status, where it was, like, Anthony right. Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs, Mel Gibson in Maverick, Richard Gere in Summersby, Liam Neeson in Nell. Um, I mean, and I... acting uh, them off the screen. Kind of Chow like... Yun-Fat in, in Anna and the King, too, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um... And kind of acting them off the screen in a lot of in a lot of these contexts, um, and then you sort of then you get into then like I said like Panic Room sort of like sets her onto this next, um, but yeah like the Denzel thing feels very much akin to that. It's just like what if we put Jodie Foster and Denzel Washington like head to head and the 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 sparks and cast they do them fly. oppositionally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, of course it's going to be so Well, fun. that's the thing about her character in this movie that's so incredibly interesting is she's oppositional to everyone. She's oppositional to Christopher Plummer, even though they are, like, aligned task-wise. Like, she's working for him. But she's maneuvering him. the scenes as if she's being accommodating. Mm-hmm. She's, she's, conf- she's oppositional, obviously, to Clive Owen because she's trying to, you know, she's after the same thing that he's after, as it turns out. They're both trying to mm-hmm. get this, you know, these this safety deposit box contents. Um, he's smart enough to probably realize that, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the second that she shows up. That's the thing. Everybody in this movie is smart. Like, there are no conveniently stupid people in this movie at all, which is, like, even, like, the hostages are smarter than you think they are. And but also, like smart people get genuinely deceived yes. like when the uh the cops discover that their like little mm-hmm. meeting tank their like boardroom tank has been bugged right right or when they find out that the the video of them seemingly shooting a hostage is not correct that's or when they find out that the guns are fake guns um right but it's like but it's not like these like idiots being like conveniently like dropping their brain for a scene so that, you know, something can yeah. happen. Um, it's thrilling to watch intelligent characters sort of bump up against each other in this way. And 
confident characters is the other thing. They're all so fucking confident. Denzel Washington is so goddamn cocky in this movie, but so is Clive Owen, and so is Jody, and so is Christopher Plummer. And, like, Christopher Plummer's sort of, like, dodged the raindrops his entire life. And he's this, like, sort of faux-humble when Denzel mentions... That like you haven't been uh you haven't been described as like, you know, regular people in a long time. And he's like, It is true, I've done well for myself. And it's like you, <laughs> you faux humble motherfucker. Um and so that's the other that's also thrilling about this. It's just like it's it really is kind of like an all-star game where it's just like the best mm-hmm. of the best have been thrown together in lower Manhattan, where there's like literally like no room to to avoid each other and they're all sort of like smashed into the situation and it's like see how they bounce off of each other and it's so much fun yeah more people should talk about this movie this is what i was sort of trying to get at earlier when i was talking about how this movie isn't really a cable movie like this movie is well regarded especially by critics I think regular people should know more about this movie and should talk more but this movie should be talked about the way that like I don't know. What's a good, like, middle-brow, like, you know, mainstream movie that people love from this era? I'm bad at this kind of thing. But, like, you know what I mean? It's just, like... I mean, I think the immediate comparison for this movie in a lot of ways, and not, like, comparison, like, one is good and one is bad, but just, like, a movie that couldn't be more different, but I think succeeds by doing similar things, and it came out the same year, it's The Departed. Mm. And, like, of this course, is a better you movie know, than you don't Departed. have a narrative of, like, we gotta get Spike Lee right. and Oscar. Look, this is this legendary director's biggest box office hit, mm-hmm. because you have the same thing happening wow. with Scorsese in the same That's year. a really interesting comparison. I think this movie blows the doors off of The Departed. Like, genuinely. I think it's so much better than The Departed. Not to, like... St- get ahead of ourselves for our Scorsese draft that so we're doing. Fun. I mean, oh, like, yeah. I think sure. I think The Departed ha- is much more defined in like what it's talking about socially and like what it has to say about, you know, class or trying to like rise uh, the American system of rising above class. Oh, do not give me a jerk off motion. I could go Not on you, about not that. you. I mean the movie. I like I think there is Oh, you just don't like The Departed. I don't like The Departed. And I don't like okay. The Departed being like, whatever, this, like, the poetry of, like, the American criminal, like, pff, fuck off. Like, I don't think it's about the poetry of the American No, criminal. but you know what I mean. Like, that's, like, anything that that movie has to say, it's, you know, uh, we're, we're going to argue about it on We'll, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> I don't think we'll argue, but this is very interesting to hear. I might use it against you. Um, <laughs> not in terms of, uh, 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 like smacking your wrist or anything but uh using this as knowledge to get whatever i want in our screen drafts uh, oh i know i've given you too much information for screen drafts this is this is not good strategy i am a very deceptive screen i have become conveniently stupid in a way that the characters in inside man never were i've made an unforced (laughs) error (laughs) well maybe i'm being conveniently stupid by by telling you oh strategies on strategies We see oh, okay. each other. Have you ever watched that <laughs> clip of Nini uh, Nini leaks on the? Uh, of course I have. We Are see each me? other. I see you. We good. Okay. We good. I see. You. We see each other. We see each other. We good. Uh, yeah, I do think that these movies, and uh, uh, obviously the spring release of it all. Like yeah. I feel like this would be a movie that would have been taken more seriously from the jump if it had been a fall release. Uh-huh. Whereas, definitely. Like, Yes. I think a lot of the critics that at the end of the year, like they couldn't even get the ball rolling enough to get like a critics prize somewhere for right, this movie. Right. Right. Um, 
and of course, it's just like you you talk about the actors. I feel like, uh, you know, Jodie Foster, especially at this time, like Jodie Foster shows up in a movie and it's talked about in this way. Even Flight Plan. We could do Flight Plan for this podcast and it's a piece of shit. And like, but before that movie came out, they were like, well, maybe Jodie Foster will get an Oscar nomination for Flight Plan because <laughs> that's the type of performer that she is. Yeah. Right. She still is. She still is. Nyad is a bad movie. Oh, you saw and Nyad. That's right. Okay. Oh, my God. Without spoiling things, tell us about Jodie. Tell us about Jodie and Nyad. She's going to get nominated, right? I think so. Um, I mean, the, it's. I feel very weird about this movie because it's not very good. No one seems excited or anticipatory for it right i think it it might be a different conversation if there wasn't a strike going on if the sag strike wasn't continuing at this point of recording we still don't know and it's not looking great right now but like sure isn't if annette benning was out there you know talking about how she was training for however long Mm -hmm. swimming and such i would believe it but like (laughs) right jodie foster's in more of the movie than annette benning she's better than annette benning in the movie i actually think annette benning's kind of broad and jodie's first build right i didn't i hear that but maybe i feel like i heard that and like it blew my mind that jodie was first built she's first built on the poster okay okay Maybe that's what I, I was think. thinking of. Um, but it's... I'm just so excited to have... I know the Mauritanian was also Jody in the Oscar conversation, but that felt so surreal and, like, not actually happening that, like... Right. This feels like... It really does feel like, oh, Jodie Foster is back like... in the Oscar conversation in a way she hasn't been since 1994? It also feels like you're seeing a Jodie Foster performance like you haven't seen in 20 years, mm-hmm. and it's... I mean, like, maybe I'm overselling how good she is in the movie because I don't think the movie's very good sure. or setting her up to do anything sure. all that interesting or something you haven't seen before. But it's just so. It feels so good yeah. to sit down I and bet. watch I bet. Jodie Foster. Sometimes to, I like, feel like that's this... a function of how of my age because I I'm such a kid of the '90s and the '90s was so like. Jody was the pinnacle, like beginning that decade with Silence of the Lambs and going all the way through like contact towards the end of the decade. And like, she's so like with me in terms of mm-hmm. like my mm-hmm. conception of just a classic A-list actress who's just like taken the bull by the horns. And I love seeing her back in that, in that mode. I joked in my letterbox log that seeing a performance like this was it that? No, I'm maybe I tweet. I don't know. But like the thing I've been saying about Jodie Foster in this movie and the type of performance she's giving is that it cleared out my brain like my brain was a hoarder house. It just <laughs> it felt like a reset button of like removing so much clutter and I bad love energy that. I love from that. my bloodstream watching oh her my give God. A performance like Jody Clear out my sinuses when you when I come and see Nyad. Like that's all I need. Is I mean, truly, she will. Yeah, I mean, like she's better than Mucinex. Uh, she's better <laughs> than that, Morning. Coffee. Put that on she's... the Nyad poster. Jodie Foster is better than Mucinex. Chris File, this had Oscar buzz. <laughs> Do it, cowards! I wouldn't put Do it, it past Netflix. them because, like, yeah. some of the poll quotes that happen uh, in this season. Oh boy. Um, Wait, so t- not to not to uh, backtrack, but like you did mention um, Inside Man being um, 
a March release and sort of not the studio's priority. And it made me go check out, well, what was uni- what was going on for Universal in 2006? 2006 is the weirdest fuck year for Universal. I'm going to run down. 2006 is a weird Oscar year. Well, and it's a weird Oscar year. And, and it's, it's, it's one of those Oscar years where studios, I think, needed to scramble to come up with their plan because whatever their first plan was didn't really work out. I think The Departed was either a really brilliant tactic of pretending that you weren't going for the Oscar until everybody believed you and then once there was a groundswell for the movie, like like re-scrambling the fighter jets for an Oscar campaign, or like either that was like really like slow planned very well, or whether that was just like an accident of of fate that after two years of pushing mm-hmm. Marty so hard in 2002 and 2004, then finally they're like, we can't do this again. We're just going to like let go and let God. And then it finally worked. But like you look at the movie that ended up being universal's big Oscar play and it ends up being United 93, which was an April release mm-hmm. that they ended up towards the end of of award season being like, we can maybe pull a director nomination for this. They probably came very close to pulling a Best Picture nomination for United 93. I would probably gather, oh, we should do that exercise, the 2006 Best Picture Top 10. Um, uh, I would gather it would have been in that Top 10. I think so, too. Well, especially with the lone director nomination. But you look at what it had going later on in the year. So it had United 93. Whatever the fuck were the plans for Miami Vice, whatever resulted was not what was planned. Like, I'm, I'm willing to admit that. The Black Dahlia in 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 September is gets a weirdo like backdoor nomination for cinematography. What did it get nominated for? Um, cinematography. Cinematography. But like clearly, like there were bigger plans for that. This is the James Elroy adaptation directed by Brian De Palma. I'm sure like it was released in the same general window that L.A. Confidential was. So I think there were like L.A. Confidential esque. Uh, aspirations for the Black Dahlia, and that did not happen. And then you look at their December, and I think their big horse was the Good Shepherd that year, which is we're going to have to do as an exception. Crunch, crunch. It did get a nomination or a couple nominations, right? We can't do it as a main feed movie. But um, it got, uh, I'm on the page. I believe it was production design. Is that the one that it got? Or art direction? Yeah, yeah. I got an art direction. So we'll have to do it as an exception. But like clearly, The Good Shepherd spent a good portion of 2006 as like the look ahead front runner for that year because it was, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it was Robert De Niro, the actor director thing. Matt Damon was like so hot right now. This was before all of the Matt Damon buzz went on to The Departed. Angelina Jolie, like it was so epic seeming and then it just like and it didn't land and then at the same time like during the same week they released children of men and i cannot tell you the bungling that happened when they pushed children of men from the fall to december and it was like i that premiered at venice children of men could have been a best picture nominee if they had opened it earlier in the fall that is my sort of i don't even know if that's a hot take i think that just sort of seems Fairly obvious. Because if you looked, like, Mm -hmm. if you were halfway through uh, 2007, by then, I think people had already sort of come around to, like, the Children of Men as a masterpiece kind of a thing. And if you had just released Mm -hmm. it earlier in 2006, I think you end up having a Best Picture nominee on your hands. Probably doesn't win still, but 
uh, Universal was still so focused on the Good Shepherd. And yet, if you were so focused on the Good Shepherd, why are you moving Children of Men to the exact same week that that movie is opening? It just makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Like, what a weird year for Universal. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? Children of Men also starring Inside Man's Clive Owen. And Inside Man's... Clive Owen would be a Best Actor nominee if that... If Children of Men had done... Clive Owen and Shuetta for They were in two movies together in that same year. Um... We'll talk about Children of Men on the Patreon, too, at some point, because, like, there's a whole story to be told there. Um, But anyway, what a weird year for Universal. What what are your thoughts and opinions on all that I've spewed out there? I mean, United 93 got that director nomination and probably would absolutely have a Best Picture nomination uh, in a year of 10, mm-hmm. partly because of the critics. I mean, the critics really kind of rallied around that movie. It won Best Picture. It also New was York the critics director with LA. It was the gallant to Oliver Stone's goofus is the other thing, right? Like it was, <laughs> it was the good 9-11 movie that year and Oliver Stone yeah, had made the yeah. bad one. Um, yeah. So, okay, really quickly though. So your five nomination nominees for Best Picture the Departed, Babel, Letters from Iwo Jima, Little Miss Sunshine, The Queen. I think if we put in United 93, so that's six. Yes. What are the other four? Uh, because Forrest Whitaker was so strong all year, I do think that that probably would have pulled up to really? the Best Picture nomination. Did it get yeah. any other nominations besides Forrest Whitaker, though? Did that movie? I know, but I do think it did well with Bath. Uh, okay maybe, i'm not i'm not ruling that dream out girls absolutely would have gotten it i think dream girls so you got that... four more i think i fill out those four personally and then you let me know what you think i think okay. it's dream girls i think it's pan's labyrinth i yeah. think it's i still don't think it's children of men i don't think it's little children i do think um Blood Diamond has a decent shot of making it in there from where things were. The fact that Blood Diamond was able to take the Leo nomination away from The Departed, I think, says something. And so that's that leaves me with one sort of, like, wild card slot. And what do I want to put in that wild card slot? I'm going to put... Huh... I still don't... Something in my gut says it wouldn't be The Last King of Scotland, but would it be... It wouldn't be The Devil Wears Prada. I I do think it would be Children of Men. Maybe. It did get... Children of Men ended up with how many nominations? Like, three? Four? Three. Well... Three nominations. Honestly, Notes on a Scandal ended up with four. Right, because it got that score nomination. Score, screenplay, and two acting. Deserved. That would have been a wild Best Picture nominee for Notes on a Scandal. I think you're probably right in Children of Men maybe sneaks into that like number 10 slot. I think you're maybe right. So I say what? It's the five? I, I, think, I think the one we disagree on is Blood Diamond, and I would say 10th is Last King of Scotland. So we have different movies about white people interfering in African politics. Sure. Uh, your, yours is The Last King of Scotland and mine is Blood Diamond. Listeners, uh, uh, hit, hit us up on, on Twitter and let us know what you think those other five you movies. You think there's a different option. So we both think it's Pan's Labyrinth, Children of Men, 
Dreamgirls, and what did I say? United 93. And so we disagree yeah. on Last King of Scotland and, and Blood Diamond. That's a good... You, oh, oh, what do you think of An Inconvenient Truth? No. You don't no. think so? Hollywood was so high on its own supply during, about that. Uh, like mailbag times, if like a documentary has ever gotten there, I just I think it's hoop dreams and nothing else. I think that it's Inconvenient like, Truth would have come as close as any documentary has in the post hoop dreams era. That's my that's that's going to be my hot take. Whether it would have made top ten or not, I think it would have come as close as any documentary would have in the post hoop dreams era. That I mean, maybe, but I just don't think that there's ever really been okay. a case where it's been even okay. in the realm of possibility. Can't believe we're both discounting cars this way. <laughs> the look of disgust on Chris Files' face when I said that is very funny to me. Um, let's talk about Spike Lee. I wanted to do that thing where we talked about... So, in his entire filmography... In terms of feature films, he's only not been, he's only not had any kind of screenplay credit on, I think it's five, six movies. So it's Girl Six, which was written by Susan Laurie Parks. Fun movie. Get on the Bus, which was written by Reggie Rock Bythewood. Any, hold on. Married to Gina Prince Bythewood. Okay, interesting. Did not realize that. Okay, so current husband of Gina Prince-Bythewood wrote the script for Get on the Bus. Uh, 25th Hour, which we've covered here, uh, screenplay by David Benioff, based on his own novel. Miracle at St. Anna, which was written by James McBride, based on his novel, Miracle at St. Anna. People hate that movie. (laughs) I've still never seen it. Isn't that I've never seen it either, and we've talked about, like, I think initially we were like, well, we could do that to talk about Spike Lee, but we're always like, but it would just be such a bummer to shit on that movie. I know. Well, that's the thing is it doesn't exist. It's like, it's also 160 minutes, y'all. Um, Oof. I know. We should at some point, though, it's Spike Lee. We, we probably owe it to him. And then Inside Man, and then uh, Old Boy, which is, I think, the consensus choice that? for... That was written by Mark Protasevich. Sure, the uh, he uh, Protasevich also did not Prometheus, but something Poseidon like and I Am Legend. There you go. Yeah, Prometheus was uh, Damon Lindelof. Um, Old Boy, I think, is probably the consensus choice for worst Spike Lee movie. It's certainly the most inexplicable one. So I think this because it's also like, why does this exist? But this list runs the gamut from like. Like low key masterpiece, like Twenty Fifth Hour, really intriguing movie like Girl Six, which is like like worth you know real interesting exploration. To like some of his more like bottoming out movies like Miracle at Saint Anna and Old Boy, and I just think it's I think it's very interesting because even the movies were like they may have come from a like a non-spike source but he clearly has enough of an input to put his name on the screenplay as a co-writer which is like Malcolm X is that Summer of Sam is that uh Red Hook Summer Chirac The Sweet Blood of Jesus Black Klansman even has like a bunch of other co-writers and so 
But like, yeah, because wasn't that Oscar for like five people? But like, you wouldn't know it from watching the Oscars. What a wonderful, joyous moment too when Spike finally wins his Oscar, presented by Samuel yeah. L. Jackson. Um, but he's so clearly an auteur filmmaker, so that mm-hmm. like his stamp really is on everything. But I think that's why I'm so fascinated by the the few examples where he isn't credited on the screenplay and like what those you know those films turned out to be and i like that they are some of the more interesting either successes or failures you know what i mean in his Mm -hmm. in his filmography it should also be noted that he is credited on the crooklyn screenplay with him and his two brothers which um Mm -hmm. is very fun i would love to talk about that movie uh at some point on the show uh to talk about alfrey woodard i mean i i Put Alfred Woodard forward on hundred um, snubs, yeah, a hundred snubs. Yeah, could have also put Delroy Lindo forward uh, for that movie, but I chose him for *To Five Bloods*. Yeah, uh, that's probably you know an off ramp to me sobbing on Mike if we ever do that movie, right? Um, well, but yeah. So you look at where Spike is at this point in his career in 2006 with *Inside Man*. He hasn't had an Oscar. I don't think he's had any Oscar nominations for his movies since Malcolm X, which is kind of shocking. Well, there's, um, uh, he was documentary nominated. Right. That's true for, uh, for little girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a good point. I should, I'm looking at the, the list of features, but you are, uh, absolutely right. But in terms of like narrative features, nothing since Malcolm X. And in that time he's made movies like, Crooklyn and Clockers and He Got Game and Summer of Sam and Bamboozled, which was like, it took a while for people to sort of like get on board with that, even if they ever did. Some people never really did. 25th Hour, which we've talked about as being this like, you know, unrecognized masterpiece in its moment. So he's got some really great movies in here. And And even his most recent movie before Inside Man is She Hate Me, which I haven't seen, but judging by the range of people who I've uh, read reviews from or talked to about that movie, everybody seems to kind of hate that movie. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's very true. Um, and so, like, it's kind of fascinating that between Malcolm X in 92 and Black Klansman in 2018, Spike Lee is absent from the Oscar nominations, even though so many of his movies were at some point or another in an Oscar conversation because he had established himself as like one of the preeminent American auteurs. Mm -hmm. And he's always like his movies are at Cannes sometimes and his movies are at the film festivals and they have these like really grand ambitions, but it didn't seem to me, I don't know if it, if it's just sort of a, a, a perception thing. It did not seem like he had this, 20 plus year drought from the Oscars when, mm-hmm. you know, when he won for Black Klansman. He's always seemed to be in and around and, um, and making really interesting movies in the meantime. And I think Inside and Man. Making movies that are very different from one another. Yeah. 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 Um, even when I don't like his movies, I'm glad that he's out there making movies, even that I don't like. Old Boy's really the only one where I'm like, what it, what was the point of this? You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like even something like Chirac, which I have like 
a lot of problems. I'm getting, pro Chirac. And I'm, and I know I'm, that a lot of people don't. I'm mixed negative on Chirac, but even that, I'm just like, I'm glad he's out there following his muse with this kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. that's, you know, it's at the very least very interesting. And so... Some of these movies I still have to see. I still have never seen Red Hook Summer. I've still never seen To Sweet Blood of Jesus. Um, That's one I haven't seen. I actually weirdly haven't seen He Got Game. He Got uh, Game's good. Denzel's I very good. I think for good. a while, probably, because I was like, well, that's a sports movie. So This doesn't like um, a sports movie. But n- now I want to catch up to it. Yeah. Um, what's interesting, uh, the, remi- the thing about Inside Man, I think, is a reminder that while... At this period in his career, we probably thought of him more as an experimenter um, and would kind of continue to after this movie a little bit. He after this movie is his most fa- experimental phase, like from Miracle at St. Anna through Chirac. Like those are like Red Hook Summer to Sweet Blood of Jesus Chirac is a really experimental spike uh, phase. Like the Sweet Blood of Jesus was a crowdfunded movie. Right, right. Yeah. Um Spike Lee is as often that as he is a studio filmmaker because like all those 90s movies were studio movies like yeah it's kind of it's something like Crooklyn now could only exist as an independent movie and it Mm -hmm. sucks because like he got he achieved the status to you know get this movie that's about like his childhood made by universal right um uh yeah i love that movie so much um uh so yeah let's talk about clive owen clive owen clive owen is so came on hot and heavy he was in smaller things like croupier right and bent before 2004 Mm when the Oscar nomination happens for Closer. But, like, that's, like, the bottle rocket moment. Right. Where he becomes, like, A-lister for a hot minute. Well, and then, like, Gosford Park, it's one of those ones where it's, like, I feel like he stood out among the ensemble in Gosford Park in a way that really, like, you know, contributed there. But it's... At what point do you feel like you became aware? It was Croupier, right? Like, I feel like it was, for everybody, it was Croupier. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So, he has this, like, really interesting string of movies in the aughts when they are sort of ramping up to the idea of Clive Owen leading man. But it's this kind of, like, start and stop kind of a thing where he's in... The 2004 King Arthur, the Antoine Fuqua King Arthur, which I almost want to watch again because, like, what they were doing with that, where it's just like, we're going to do the King Arthur story as, like, a grimy action movie with, you know, like, badass Guinevere. You know what I mean? As Kira Knightley <laughs> as badass Guinevere. Um, the, what if Guinevere was a badass? And it's like... Mads Mikkelsen's in that movie, and Joel Edgerton's in that movie, Ray Winstone. Like, the cast is kind of insanely amazing uh, in terms of, like, how deep it goes with um, these really interesting... And they're all, like, this feels very, like, proto-Game of Thrones, even, you know what I mean? Where it's just, like, we're gonna settle these ancient... uh, these battles of, of 
dynasty and whatnot on the battlefield. And I don't know. Good for Antoine Foucault, I guess. Uh, that's the same year that he does Closer, though, where he wins the Golden Globe. He's so good. Everybody in that movie, I'm on record as feeling like all four of those people are tremendous and closer. But like, I think that movie is like, I, I recently re- rewatched it because this whole year I you're took doing the my Nicholas's. time, but yeah, after reading, finally reading uh, Mark Harris's uh, tremendous Mike Nichols book, I did the whole filmography. Yeah, and getting to closer on this rewatch, I was like, this script is maybe bad, but. That movie is so watchable. It's very and much a play. Because... It's very much a play script that, like, and like a very dated sure, play. Sure, I mean it's it's a twenty year old movie at this point. Any movie, like... any play that was made in the nineties or aughts that where the subject is a battle of the sexes, like men and women, like are yeah. they on you know a collision course with each other, or whatever. Always is always going to seem dated, and like this is no yeah. exception. But like it's still uh, as good and watchable as it is because of those actors. The acting, and, like, yes, hundred percent. Yeah, right. Yeah, the dialogue um, feels very st- like the scene with Natalie and Clive Owen in the strip club. The dialogue. It's a fun scene. It's, it's the best scene in the. The thing. dialogue is so junky, but they both pull it off with such fucking aplomb and just so like they tear right into each other and oh it's so i don't know i still love it clive owen is great in the movie yeah he is as a really despicable guy to be honest um oh they're all in one way or another pretty despicable but like he's probably the most they're despicable despicable in like an eye roll way at the very least Um, jude law is weak and natalie is will never allow anybody to be close to her and julia roberts has absolutely no self-esteem and Clive Owen is the sort of like he says it at one point. He's just like I'm a fucking caveman or whatever. But that's also right. like very clearly a a um a costume he puts on to like keep himself safe from the world. But there's one point where he's yelling at Jude Law, and I think it's after, and it's when Jude Law comes back to him. Is so pathetic, and he's like, "Please let Anna be with me instead of you." Essentially, and Clive <laughs> Owen's just like, "Get out of here, pathetic!" And at one point, he's just like, "You writer!" He like calls him a writer <laughs> as like a as this like most like awful epithet. It's so good. Um, it's also heterosexual nonsense. Of course, the whole it's time, heterosexual like, nonsense. These straight people. Sometimes are... I can enjoy that. I'm allowed. Yeah. Um. He's in Sin City in 2005 and is one of, like, the featured guys in Sin City. Like, there's a lot of people in that movie, but I think that movie really spotlights Clive Owen, Bruce Willis, and who's the uh, uh, Mickey Rourke are sort of, like, the three sort of, like, spotlight guys in that movie. Sin City is a better trailer than it is a movie, but, like, I remember being very fascinated by that movie even when it came out. And it was... That is a two-hour-plus movie that I think would be... You you lose your patience with that movie uh-huh. at some point. Uh-huh. And if it was maybe a 90-minute movie, uh-huh. you might not. I think that's right. I think that's right. As a trailer, it fucking rules. Um, 2006 <laughs> is Inside Man and Children of Men, which is, like, probably his best year in terms of, like, doing two movies mm-hmm. where he's absolutely tremendous. Children of Men, I think, is a masterpiece. And he's really great in it even though he's like not the thing that you walk away 
sort of praising from that movie. I think you walk away like that as an Alfonso Cuaron, you know, uh, movie sort of through and through, but I think he's very good in it. And Lubetsky. Oh, and Lubetsky, my God, yes. Um, 2007 is a little bit of... 2007 is sort of where the stumbles start. He's cast in Elizabeth the Golden Age, which I think ultimately doesn't serve him super well. It's... It's barely a good movie, and it's only a good movie if you watch it as, like, a Kate Blanchett burlesque uh, performance. 100%. It's very fun as that. But, like, he gets sort of stranded in that. Samantha Morton gets sort of stranded in that. Um, it's too bad. He's also in The International, which is a Tom Tickver movie where it's, like, him and Naomi Watts. And the idea of the idea of it is it's supposed to be this very sort of, like, fun spy action drama or whatever and it just kind of falls a little flat it's it's somewhat almost uh, anonymous isn't the right word because what tom tick for a movie is but it's a little boring for it's just it gets lost it doesn't distinguish itself enough yeah it's lost in a soup of generalized spy movie mid-aughts yeah so soup the next movie he makes, I think, is the linchpin of his entire career, and it's never going yeah. to make me less than furious. He's in Tony Gilroy's Duplicity, opposite Julia Roberts, a movie that even still today, I will hear people say that that's a bad movie, and I don't understand it. I don't I understand that I have to rewatch it to have an informed opinion on the movie. I remember being a little disappointed by it, oh. but it was also that... It was, you know, him opposite Julia Roberts, obviously a reunion from Closer, yeah. but also it was supposed to be this big box office smash. It flopped at the box office. And they decided that they, being the culture at large, it it was like he was branded, well, he's not a movie star. Well, and they also retroactively brought up like well he couldn't turn children of men into an oscar hit even though and it's just like first of all that wasn't his fault universal completely bungled the release of that movie it's infuriating that you're going to try to lay the blame for that at his feet and then like i like i will grant you your your opinion on duplicity i do think it's an unalloyed masterpiece of a movie it's so much fucking fun he and julia roberts are perfect opposite each other they are like it's it's essentially an unofficial i almost feel like it should take place within the oceans 11 universe where like she plays tess ocean in like her side life as a having an affair as a cia agent who like danny ocean's completely unaware of it and she's sort of like living this side life their whole thing where like they are lying to each other and to everyone at all times you are never able to trust them it's like double cross on double cross on double cross tony gilroy is so nimble in the way that he directs the whole thing the character actors in that thing speaking of kathleen shalfon who we talked about in our hereditary episode like she rules in that dennis o'hare rules Paul Giamatti, Tom Wilkinson, Tom McCarthy, like I can't. Uh, it's and that is a perfect catch it on cable movie too. If you catch Duplicity I on will, cable, I I promise to okay. Uh, do I, a I will stop soon. lecturing you about it. But I think it's. <laughs> but you're not lecturing. I me, I would be fine if it sort of like soft flopped. But people seemed to genuinely go out of their way to shit on this movie and to shit on him because of this movie. And I'm just like. 
It's very strange. And it's also like, it's Tony Gilroy's follow-up to Michael Clayton. And so people were like, oh, what a disappointment or whatever. And it's like, fuck you. Like, it's not as good as Michael Clayton because like, it's what is? It's not as dark soul of the night as Michael Clayton was either. So Sure. But like, oh, it's so, ooh, duplicity rules. I'm sorry. Duplicity Everything rules. Everything after duplicity, though. Is sad. Even even the things that I think are successes are just, like, very, very minor key successes, like The Nick, a show I definitely want to loop back to and finally watch because Same. I know I'll probably like it. Everybody yeah. says that I'll like it, and I believe them. But it's things like, even a decade on, he's in high-profile things that don't go well, like Valerian gemini man i like valerian a lot he's still working regularly but not in a lot of things that you've maybe seen or liked. i like valerian a lot and that movie doesn't really use him particularly well um but yeah it's a lot of just like he's in this movie called last nights with morgan freeman and like what the fuck is that movie that yeah it's like i'm just a lot of things that don't even exist like that. A lot of movies where Including it's like... Including television that doesn't exist in American Crime Story Clinton or whatever, which yeah. was apparently, like, impossible to watch, not in the, like, it's bad, but, like, impossible to watch as in people didn't know when it aired, <laughs> where they could find it on streaming. If I told you that Clive Owen starred in a Canadian family drama film with him and Jaden Martell, Nay Lieberherr, and Maria Bello, and Robert Forster, would you believe me? One million percent I would believe Okay, you. well, it happened. Um, it's called The Confirmation. I've never heard about it in my entire life. But, like, it's... I, uh, it's, a, it's a bummer. I think it's a real bummer. Um, what does he even have coming up? Hold on a second. IMDb... It does feel like he was branded as box office poison in a way, so he just, like, and never bounced back. And it's, uh, I find it to be such a shame. All right, upcoming, Clive Owen. He is, well, it's two, oh, right, he's in the uh, upcoming Brit Marling TV miniseries that's going to be on FX next month. Or I guess this month as you're listening to it. A murder You'll be contractually obligated to watch. A Murder at the End of the World. I'm so excited. Uh, Clive Owen, Emma Corrin, Britt Marling. Who else is in this? Um, Alice Braga, Harris Dickinson. Hello, Harris Dickinson. Um, Raul Esparza. Come on now. Um, Joan Chen is in this. Fuck yeah, I'm going to watch this. Oh, I can't wait. He's also in... IMDb really is being very slow. Um, he's playing Sam Spade in an upcoming TV series called Monsieur Spade. I don't know where this is going to air, but um, Sam Spade as a 60-something expat living in France, living in the south of France. I'd kind of sure. watch this. Sure, why not? Um, and then what's the movie that is in production? It's something called Cleaner? That we don't get any information. Oh no, it's a Martin Campbell movie with Daisy Ridley. Okay, that sounds like something that is not going to. Exist. It's not. Well, yeah, I think that's that does feel like it fits in this in the sort of the the bummer. Uh, Clive Owen. Somebody like. Here's the thing. We are so past the point of needing an actor who can open a movie because no actors open movies anymore. So like, just cast Clive Owen in something. He's good. 
just fucking do it. <laughs> I'm so fucking pissed off about all of this. Like, just fucking do it. And, he, like, he does still work... A lot. Very All the time, often, kind of. Yeah. So it doesn't seem like the type of thing right. that there's, like, whispers around. You know, that he's, like, a monster. Bad or, or difficult or whatever. Right, exactly, exactly. <sighs> all right, we've talked about everything. everybody else. We should talk about Denzel, who's so fun in this movie. It's a, uh, he is... I love him when he is in this mode... Where he's just like loose, smartass. Yeah, clearly having fun yeah. as a performer. He's clearly incredibly comfortable it... working with Spike. Obviously, after all these years. Yeah, and just like like I've I've said it a million times, greatest living actor it makes yeah. this so much more interesting by the things that he is clearly adding to the role. That are Denzel Washington's aughts are also so you look at after the second Oscar, after the training day Oscar, it's either like take away like your Antoine Fishers, which he directed, The Great Debaters, take away Mm -hmm. sort of that. And it's a lot of I'm not gonna say anonymous, because like these aren't anonymous movies, but they are different iterations on the he's a cop. And he's on his own, and he's trying to solve something. These sort of mystery thrillers. Carl Franklin's Out of of Time. Tony Scott's Man on Fire. um, Deja Vu. Deja Vu, which was uh, another Tony Scott. The original Beyonce visuals for the song (laughs) Deja Vu. That was another Tony Scott, was Deja Vu. Um, American Gangster is a little bit more prestige. That's a Ridley Scott. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like the thing is, this comes the year before American Gangster. American Gangster <laughs> for, is like it, it, these are two great comparison points to what I was saying earlier. Yeah. Uh, but I was speaking more for the movie. But like, just if you look at Denzel Washington's performance, American Gangster makes like maybe fifty million dollars more than Inside Man does yeah. because it opens in the Thanksgiving window, and it gets buzzed throughout the season for Denzel Washington. I would very strongly argue that Inside Man is a far more entertaining and better movie, and he is better in it than he is an American gangster. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I also didn't realize yet, that he made it's simple placement. He made four Tony Scott movies in the span of 2004 to 2010. That's kind of amazing. Um... Between uh, Man on Fire, Deja Vu, The Taking of Pelham One Two Three, and and Unstoppable. Um, also, I'd throw Two Guns in there, which is a 2013 movie. But like, and then it's sort that's of Wahlberg. That's Wahlberg, and then he moves into Ugh. these sort of like he's either making Oscar stuff or remaking stuff, where it's like The Equalizer, The Magnificent Seven, Fences, Roman J. Israel, Equalizer 2, like Tragedy of Macbeth, (laughs) Um, Equalizer 3. He's going to be in Gladiator 2, which I don't think I... There's, like, going to be a lot of people in Gladiator 2, right? Like, it's I am so fascinated as to what this is going to turn out to be, because, like, it's... Yeah, what the hell is Gladiator 2 going to be? Like, it's about uh, Russell Crowe's nephew. Or, no, it's, sorry, it's Joaquin Phoenix's nephew. Something, whatever. Paul Mescal's like the kid from Gladiator, who was Spencer Treat Clark in Gladiator, and now he's all grown up. I forget what his actual parentage is, but it's he's Connie Nielsen's kid. Um, and so Paul Mescal plays Mescal. I'm still trying to 
figure that out. Paul Meskel plays this kid, the Spencer Tree Clark kid. But like Connie Nielsen's in this movie, Jaiman Hansu is back in this movie, and yet it's also like As is Jacoby. Derek Jacoby, yep. Um Denzel Washington though, uh Fred Heshinger, who was it you who was talking to me about Fred Heshinger recently? Yeah, that he is like a Gen Z character actor. Yeah. Who was in it and then had to drop out? There was somebody recently, I feel like, who was cast in it and... Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Give me a second. I think it was Barry Keoghan. I'm just saying, I think if Russell Crowe shows up in this movie as a ghost, I'm out. Barry Keoghan had to drop out, and so it's Fred Heshinger is playing the role that Barry Keoghan was going to play. I know. That's a weird recasting. I don't know if it's that weird. I don't. I think they sort of are... I think Fred Heshinger is sort of like the the dollar store version of Barry Keoghan in a little bit of ways. Is he, though? I feel like those are two very different actors. Have you seen... Uh, you've obviously seen the, the woman in the window or whatever. What's the one? I feel like Fred Heshinger is playing the Barry Keoghan role in that movie. <laughs> yeah, right? Okay. He's sort of sacred deer adjacent in that movie. Uh, uh, you're very specific. You're very particular. It's fine. It's fine. All right. Anyway, I didn't even like Gladiator, but I'm so fascinated to see what Gladiator yeah, 2 like ends up being. I kind of hate Gladiator. Also, they're going to end up like, it's not going to be Gladiator 2 by the time it hits theaters. It's going to be called like Gladiator, like Sons and Fathers. Dawn of a Warrior or something like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gladiator, Blood and Sand. Like, yeah. <laughs> It'll be something. We should take like that. Gladiator, Wrath of the it's Sand. It's going to be the most Mad Libsy subtitle ever. And Yeah, word salad. Yeah, for mm-hmm. real. Okay. Um, and then he's, Denzel is trying to get a movie version of the piano lesson uh, happening with... John David Washington and Samuel from Jackson. From the Broadway production. From the Broadway production. Um, directed by... It's supposed to be directed by Malcolm Washington. Is that one of his other kits? Yes. Interesting. Yes, I believe. So it's a family affair here. Um, I mean, that cast of that movie, I guess, are they... It must be in production on at some stage of production right now. Da- John David Washington, Samuel L. Jackson, Ray Fisher, Danielle Deadweiler, Corey Hawkins, Erica Badu, Jerrica Hinton, Stefan uh, James. That's a banger of a cast. I know. I've never seen that on stage, the piano lesson, nor have I read it. Um obviously an August Wilson play. All the August Wilsons are coming uh to film, which is like kind of an amazing that we're in the sort of like August Wilson adaptation era it. between Fences and Ma Rainey and now uh, the piano lesson coming out hopefully soon. I'm into it. I'm into all of it. Um, anyway, Denzel's not going to be in that, but he is producing it. So there's that. All right. Should we move into the IMDb game? Yeah, let me just make sure that we haven't... I do want to mention a couple of the Spike Lee sort of uh, touches to this movie. The fact that when... Oh! What's that? No, go ahead, go ahead, because I have something I'm so glad we didn't move on to the okay. IMDb game we have to start Good. Um, when Clive Owen is collecting everybody's cell phones, and the one guy doesn't have a cell phone and is trying to say that he left his at home, and so Clive... First of all, that scene has such insane energy when Clive is, like, furiously going through the bag of cell phones trying to find a phone that has this guy's number in its contacts, 
which by the way that that dates it as 2006 more than anything because none of these phones have uh <laughs> face scans that he can just like open the phone and go into the contacts without having to like you know do anything else to him um and finally the phone rings and it's gold digger is the ringtone of this like <laughs> white banker you know what i mean which is just that like it's very it's a and it's a very spikely touch um but also like all the like all the interrogation scenes of the witnesses where you know the old guy is talking about how the one time he stole a nickel and um I, just all of those scenes feel very again i keep saying bespoke which is probably like an annoying way of of being like very singularly cared for but like it's it's the mark of a director who a knows exactly the kind of movie that he wants but b like gives mm-hmm. a shit about every single little thing that happens in the movie and i love that yes yeah but also like uh finely detailed to the identity of this thing that it is you're watching yes you know i think like, that's right tailor made to the full experience of what this is not you know for lack of a better word off the rack right yeah it's a good point well put so what were you going to say before i uh jumped in with mine <sighs> the terrence blanchard score in this movie fucking rules it does rule. i'm sure we talked about terrence blanchard in our 25th hour episode because that score is even better terrence blanchard never oscar nominated until black klansman does get a nomination for the five bloods should have won for it yeah let's get this man his oscar yes. yeah um what's your favorite terrence blanchard score it's probably 25 yeah hour. i was gonna say but i will say his defy blood score was tremendous yes yeah. agreed agreed all right now should we get into the imdb game Yes, would you like to explain the IMDb game for our listeners? Always. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with the name of an actor or an actress, and try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are TV shows, voice-only performances, non-acting credits, we mentioned that up front. After two wrong guesses, we will uh, give the remaining titles release years as a clue, and if that is not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. That's the IMDb game. Sure How do you want to do this today? Are you giving or guessing first? I genuinely, we recorded an episode yesterday and I already don't remember who went first. So I'm just going to give my clue first and, okay, and we'll do it fine. that way. I think that that's the exact logic that I used last All night right. when we recorded. Sounds good. Okay. Um, I went through the more recent uh, Clive Owen movies and one of his more recent co-stars was uh ms cara delavine whose name is so love lovingly pronounced by uh, reese witherspoon in that viral elevator video uh where you've seen the elevator video where where reese witherspoon is like cara cara i don't know how to pronounce your name and (laughs) of course yeah um anyway cara delavine no television no voice performances what was that john green thing not the fault in our stars, but the other thing. What indeed? What was that called? The one with Alex Wolf. I don't know, but do you want to take or that again, where Wolf? you're not blowing out the <laughs> mic? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. It's the one with Alex Wolf or Nat Wolf. Whenever I'm called to tell them apart, I'm like, "There's more than one." Stop it! Alex is the better um, wolf. 
obviously, but then when I'm approached with a natural... They also don't look particularly... Oh, one thing we didn't mention in the Hereditary episode, not to, like, backtrack, that both Alex Wolf and, um... Uh, oh, what's the name of the actress who plays his sister, whose name I've already... Millie Shapiro. Millie Shapiro. Both are or were in sibling uh, bands, were in bands with their siblings. That's kind of funny to me. I wonder if they talked about that. Anyway, continue. Um, a map... Is the title about a map? It's not what a map, a but what would you find on a map? A compass. No, but what? Like, what is? what are the, the places on a map? Interstates and cities. Locations. What's another name for cities? Destination. Town. Town. Something towns. 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 And like before you looked at maps on your phone, where would you what would what would maps consist of? Paper towns. There you go. Paper towns. Uh you gave me a lot of clues for me to have guessed nothing wrong. And so that <laughs> I, um, I don't think you're at risk of, of of running the table on this, is what I will say. Carnell Levine hasn't been in that many things. More than you would think, actually, when I'm looking at her filmography right now. But yeah. Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad, correct. Enchantress. Yeah. I mean, I could say her smell, but I don't think her smell's showing up for... Well, no, because Cara Delevingne is, like, second build for She it, is second build. I am going to say her smell. It's not her smell, but that's very good logic, because she is second build in that movie. Roxy... What is her name? Roxy Rock? Roxy Rotten. Roxy Rotten, of course. No, she's uh, Crassy Cassie. Roxy Rotten is Amber Benson. Got it. She's Crassy Cassie. Um, okay. But that's like the era, Paper Towns and Suicide Squad, yeah. of when Kara was doing things on screen. Is there also a, a horror movie? It's not Suicide Squad. That's Anya Taylor-Joy. Did I tell you I was talking to a friend and former guest, Kyle Amato? Uh, and he maybe convinced me to watch New Mutants sometimes oh i i would take very little convincing to watch new mutants i've never watched it but like i'm i'm weirdly curious what did kyle how did kyle sell you on it he's like it's fine oh he i thought he like told you a thing about it that that made you want to watch it oh no um that like glenn uh, i think it was just more so he was like it's curious because it's actually not a disaster interesting I remember the conversation correctly. All right. You've got um, two correct. You haven't gotten any wrong yet. And one wrong guess. I'm just going to say New or Mutants. No, you have gotten one wrong guess. That's right. Um, yeah. No, not New Mutants. All right. Your clues are 2012 and 2017. Wow. 2012. That's. I, I don't think I realized she was in this movie. The 2012 movie. Interesting. It's a movie we both like. She would have been like 10. Yeah. She would have been pretty young. I don't know. She's one of these people who doesn't have her real age on her IMDb. Oh, no, she does. And she would have been 20. Whoops. Um, okay, so... It's... You saying you didn't know that she was in this movie. A lot of people are in this movie. But there's also exactly. a lot of female roles in this movie. So, like, I'm sure that she's... Like, I can imagine where in the movie she's in. Um... We both like it. Oh, uh, 2017 is Valerian. 2017 is Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets. That's the connection to Clive Owen. Um, so, 
Oh, and I didn't even think about that connection. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So 2012. Oh, is it Sucker Punch? It's not Sucker no, Punch. No, Sucker Punch is older than that. It's a little um, bit older than that. But I'm guessing there's a large female ensemble. There is. Um, there's a large ensemble in general, but there's especially a lot of roles for females considering the sort of uh, composition of the story. Uh, I shouldn't put it that way. Carrot Levine, I believe, is non-binary, but uses she, her pronouns. Is that um, true? I don't think I knew that. All right. Um... Or maybe Cara Delevingne identifies as fluid, but good for Cara shouldn't Delevingne. just lump her with all female performers. Um, this movie was nominated for multiple Academy Awards. It won at least one. Um, it won exactly one. Twelve. Okay, so the year of two thousand twelve, we are talking Argo. It can't be Argo. It's not Argo. Um, is she in Les Mis? She's not in Les Mis. Okay, so what else is this going to leave me? It won an Oscar. It won. She's not in Silver Linings Playbook. Nope. She's not in Amour. Amour does not have a lot of roles. I don't period. think Amour won anything. Or did it win foreign language? It won foreign language. Okay, yeah, then no. Yeah. Uh, what would have been foreign language that year? Right. So. I can, that is also the year of Zero Dark Thirty. I can't imagine she's in Zero Dark Thirty. I feel 30. like if I give you any more clues, you're going to get it easily. Yeah. Um, no acting nominations, although I would have given this at least two acting nominations. Okay. Which sounds like Argo. Um, <laughs> I don't think I would have given Argo any acting nominations. Not a Best Picture nominee? No. Okay. Screenplay nominee. I don't think so. Interesting. All crafts. So this is like, uh, this is a big budget movie. Did it win like visual effects? Nope. It won. Makeup. Like, like think of like craft, like, like tangible crafts. Costume design. Yes. Oh, okay. So, is that young? Is that the year of Young Victoria? No, Young Victoria is like oh nine. What would have won costume design this year? I know listeners are screaming. It's a very most costumes me. movie, but it's also very good costumes. This movie was nominated. It won for costume. It was nominated for cinematography, score, and production design. Oh God, I know it's right there. I'm gonna blow out my mic when I get the answer. Yeah, be careful. Um. um since I've already blown out my mic like twice this episode. Um, it probably got those same four categories for this director's previous Oscar nominated movie that was a Best Picture nominee. Mm. 2012 isn't Marie Antoinette. No, but like but you're it won in a the costume. ballpark. I know I'm in the ballpark, and it's not parking Young Victoria. Lot. It's not <sighs> travel eastward, Germany. Ra- Anna Karenina. Further. Anna Karenina, very good. She's in Anna Karenina. She's a princess of some extraction got in it, Anna Karenina. For a movie that I love, I have not seen it in a while. So 
I I probably owe it a rewatch soon, especially. Um, I don't even know why, especially, especially because I think it's I because remember it's loving wonderful. it. Tr- also, talk about a movie with an A plus trailer. I didn't mention it when we did our mailbag recently about trailers that I love. The Anna Karenina trailer slaps. It's so good. Um, all right, what do you have for today me today? For you, I have pulled from the Spike Lee filmography. What, what accent is this? Uh, Are you sorry, from Copenhagen? Sorry, sorry. What's okay, going on? Okay, okay. So, my friends and I, when we went to Provincetown, we had a like uh, of unknown uh, Swedish origin waitress oh, who nice. like became a character in our lives, and we. I love vacation characters. We vacation always, characters we are do very like important. the nightly specials in her voice um oh my god anyway. we had uh we had an instacart uh delivery from this lady named mirna one time and mirna was judging the homosexuals as she was dropping off the, the groceries it was fantastic great, great. Uh, shout out to mirna in palm springs um <laughs> she is anyway. like why do you buy all of these doritos <laughs> and lube i don't understand we also had like the most insane order where we had like two giant bags of oranges and like you made her run by the know. dispensary. No, the dispensary was our own little trip, but yeah, like basically, it was it was a it was a very strange order, but yeah, yes. Anyway, continue. fabulous. Um, so I went into the Spike Lee filmography. Uh, we've done a lot of those people that I initially drew. So of his headliners, I drew Jungle Fever's Wesley Snipes. Wesley Snipes. Oh boy. Okay. Um. White Men Can't Jump. Correct. Passenger 57? Incorrect. Damn. Okay. Wesley Snipes. Tu Wong Fu? Incorrect. Dang. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. You were... Right to guess both of those movies because his entire known for is from the 90s. His other years are 1991, 1993, and 1998. New Jack City. New Jack City. New Jack City, not just a good movie, but uh, did the memes help get this to his known for status, I wonder? Of New Jack City? Yeah. New Jack City's where he's like crying and holding the gun. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 1993's got to be Demolition Man. It is Demolition Man. He so rules in that movie. He chews every fucking bit of, of scenery I in that. Seen and he's, I haven't Oh my God, Chris. Unless, if I've seen it's, it, I was a child. Talk about a movie that's fun to watch on cable. Like, Demolition Man is a time. <laughs> it's also, like, genuinely funny in a lot of ways. Um, Sandra Bullock's very good in it. Um, 1998? Correct. Listeners are like, definitely screaming at you. Is that like Murder at 1600? No. Listeners are yelling at me yes. because I'm not getting the Wesley yes. Snipes 1998 movie. That should be the only clue that you need, but maybe I'll give you more. Because it's a movie that I love? No, I mean, maybe you do. I think this movie is very fun. Um, I will probably watch it if I can, if I have time, which I probably won't, in the next 10 days. Because it's a spooky season movie? Yeah. It, it could be a spooky season movie. Okay. 
Oh, Blade. Blade. Blade, of course. Right. Blade I, for some reason, rules. the rules. I enjoy Blade. It does kind of rule. The first Blade, it's so... F- I'm such a weirdo. The first Blade, I'm like, oh, that Stephen Dorff movie, because I think Stephen Dorff's incredible in the first Blade. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not a... I'm, it's not that I'm not a Blade person, but like my my Wesley Snipe touchstones are very much White Men Can't Jump to Wong Fu, um, uh, New Jack City, Passenger 57, like that kind of stuff. Like Blade comes very, very late um, in my thinking process. Of course it's Blade. You're right. People probably were yelling at me and they were right to do so. All right. Well done. Well done. That is our episode. If you want more This Head Oscar Buzz, you should check us out on Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. Please also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Also on Instagram at thishadoscarbuzz. And of course on Patreon. Patreon.com slash thishadoscarbuzz. Joe, where can the listeners find more of you? Twitter and Letterboxd at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I am also on Twitter and Letterboxd at Crispy File. That's F-E-I-L. We would like to thank uh, Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork, Dave Gonzalez and Kevin Mebius for their technical guidance, Taylor Cole for our theme music. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so build yourself a little cabinet within the walls of <laughs> Apple Podcasts and give us a little five-star review. That's all for this week. We hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast staring at that face on your face. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had a lofty cat. Let's take it back. Take it back now, y'all. Take it back now, uh, y'all. Two hops this time. Bam, bam. Okay. Hands on your knees. Hands on your knees. Uh, okay. Now I'm imagining Clive Owen and all his bank robbers doing the cha-cha slide all the way out the out the vault. <laughs> Please put this at the end of the audio. Yeah.